Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about Hidden Figures, the 2016 film directed by Theodore Melfi, screenplay by Alison Schroeder and Theodore Melfi. Based on the book by Margot Lee Shetterly, I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetos. Hi. So before we jump into Hidden Figures, uh, first, I just want to say thank you to everyone who left answers to our question on the Two Towers episode, where we mentioned Spotify has this new feature where if you're listening on Spotify, we can ask a question and you guys can share your answers and we can pin some of the comments. And it's been really fun to see that we got 67 replies, which was definitely more than I was expecting. The question for that one was, of course, theatrical or extended edition of Lord of the Rings. Which do people prefer? It seems like the overwhelming majority prefer the extended editions. Yeah. (laughs) Brian wins. (laughs) (laughs) Brian wins. So to that end, we have a new question for you guys today. We did Lord of the Rings because we passed 500 patrons on Patreon. And so for our 750 patron goal, we're going to be doing a trilogy on the Indiana Jones trilogy. So three episodes on those three movies and then a patron exclusive on that other thing. And so... (laughs) (laughs) The question for you guys listening on Spotify is, which is your favorite Indiana Jones movie? And I'm really curious to see if there's if there's a trend, if it's evenly split. Uh, So let us know. We're excited to find out. You think it might be evenly split three ways? No, not three (laughs) ways. (laughs) There might be an even split somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Can we include the young Indiana Jones Chronicles as an option? Uh, Sure. If that's someone's favorite, I do want right. to know about it. <laughs> right. Feel free to, sh- to share that with us. So Hidden Figures is a, uh, a one of the videos that I made early on in the channel, apparently. But in my head, it's one of these videos that I'm like, oh, yeah, it's one of these modern lessons from the screenplay videos that I made recently. <laughs> and upon rewatching it, I realized, no, that was 2017. That was a little bit ago. Yep. But it was video that I made because I saw it in figures, really, really enjoyed it and was struck by how the film balances all of the subplots. And so there's this very clear protagonist and Katherine Johnson, but there's also these other two characters and you're tracking their journeys and there's a love story with Katherine Johnson. And I hadn't really done any kind of dissection of subplots or how they work and how they can work together to enhance the theme of a film and all these things. So I got excited about that. I went through the script. I remember highlighting each like each subplot with a different color so I could track when the script was focusing on what and then marking down on like a graph. This was the inciting incident for this subplot, not subplot. And then that turned into a crazy motion graphics in the final video. And so the video didn't do super well, but it was one of the ones where the people that did watch it reached out a lot and said, mm. I loved this video. It was mm. so great and became kind of this uh, cult fan favorite is what I'm going to call it <laughs> within the lessons from the screenplay world anyway. So it was really fun to revisit that and to revisit the movie and remember why I was so excited about how well the screenplay juggles all these things. And there's always, as it cuts between these different subplots, it keeps you engaged. There's always something new happening mm-hmm. and some kind of progression. As I point out in the video, you know, that those progressions can come at different points, like some of the inciting incidents for the characters come much later in the film, some come before the main inciting incident. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's still a really great screenplay to look at and study if you're interested in 
understanding how subplots can enhance the story that you're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's also just interesting to see sort of how little you can do to tell a story. There are subplots in this film that I thought were a huge part of the story from my memory. And then going back, I'm like, this is probably two minutes of screen time. In the right. movie. But like, I remember those beats. We talked about this in the Pride and Prejudice podcast with um, the two younger characters, uh, Jenna Maloney and Carrie Mulligan, I think. Mm-hmm. Trisha, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who like they again, maybe two minutes of screen time focused on those two characters, but every act you get a little just snapshot of what mm-hmm. they're going through. And then you put in your mind, you put together this this whole story. And obviously Hidden Figures has way more, you know, obviously prevalent uh, subplot characters and stuff. But it's just interesting that you can you have these like sub subplots too, where this little image symbol, as you talked about, Michael, in the video is shown to you and then it's shown to you again and it's shown to you again. And it's very efficient, quick work to make you put together a very complete story in your head. It's a really interesting example, too, of a a case where subplots are actually not in any way entangled in terms of mechanics or like plot wise with the main plot. Mm -hmm. Like if something goes terribly wrong in the subplot, I guess, except for maybe Janelle Monae's character, right? Like if Mm -hmm. she can't get into her night classes, then she won't be able to become an engineer. Like that's sort of potentially connected. But most of the subplots are really not connected, you know, sort of on paper or on the surface to the central plot, but they are doing something thematic and they're creating greater personal investment in the characters. And I think it's so important for this movie to work for us to really care about these characters and their triumphs and their their failures and their losses and all of this stuff. You know, we want so badly for Katherine Johnson to be happy again, um, you know, and we we see these sort of like the grief of what's been lost in her home life, you know, after ha- after she lost her her first husband. Her love story with Mahershala Ali's character <laughs> is is really beautiful. But like if they didn't get together, you know, it probably wouldn't affect the mission. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But it does help us understand her and care about her. It really is doing something to enrich that aspect of the sort of personal connection we have with her and that side of the story. And I think it's a really beautiful example of how that can, um, how subplots that aren't connected, like, I guess, yeah, plot-wise dependency (laughs) to the main plot can still serve a narrative function. Um, in a really beautiful way, I think. And as a Benjamin Button fan, it was really fun to see Taraji B. Henson and Mahershala Lee get together again. <laughs> wow. One of those things that you didn't know you wanted. And as a Moonlight fan, it was fun to see Janelle Monet and Mahershala Ali in a movie yeah, together. This again. was like when Mahershala Ali was in everything. And it was kind of yeah. fun to just see him show up in every movie, it felt like. Yes, that is fun. Both my girlfriend and I seem to have the exact same crush on him. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> something we're working don't, through I mean, don't we all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah and, and trisha i think a cool thing the movie does to echo what you're saying is just that opening scene uh not the flashback scene but the opening scene with them and the car breaking down mm-hmm. because just a very efficient way of saying here's yeah. who these three women are here is who each of these characters is individually and then here is this broad thematic thing that they'll be dealing with throughout the film that they're exactly. all dealing with so you see you're actually seeing them deal with it together you know and and they are they have a little mini victory there in that scene <laughs> so it's sort of like here's a here's a little overture of what the, the film is going to be exactly that that really struck me because I actually had not seen this movie before. This was my first time watching uh, it. I, yeah. I missed it in its original run and I really liked it. I think I had kind of written it off as falling into this 
category of, you know, paint by numbers. It's going to be inspirational. It's it's mm-hmm. going to be like kind of a bare minimum effort of like, it's all going to be well done and fine, but you're going to see every beat coming. And it's going to be, you know, my cynical, you know, film goer brain was just like, it's just one of those movies. But <laughs> when I started watching it, I was just really impressed with it. I, like you're talking about those opening scenes. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, these scenes are accomplishing so much so efficiently and doing it well. It's not it's not kind of like a, you know, here's like a flat one dimensional scene to show racism. It's like it's also establishing the characters and they have a kind of a victory and there's like a surprise twist at the end. It's not just generic defaults, Oscar bait paint by numbers stuff. And so I was really delighted by the film. And and as it went on, you know, I was finding that all the elements of the production design, the, you know, the acting, the construction of the plot, the music, the cinematography, all of it was elevated above that kind of just like generic bare minimum Oscar bait thing that I was (laughs) expecting. The efficiency of it was, was one of the things I was just so impressed by just every scene accomplished more than one thing it felt like there was always a character something happening there was a story world you know historical fiction establishing something else about this time and place and there was plot moving forward and it it was like such a tight script in that way that it was such a pleasure to get to experience that yeah and that opening scene with the car too does such a good job of on top of everything you just said alex it does something logistic in terms of keeping the characters together and like keeping them sort of united in our brain because mm-hmm. they're not really all three in very many scenes. You have that mm-hmm. scene, right. you have the scene where they're at the picnic, the church picnic, which is a, an awesome, you know, lovely scene. And mm-hmm. then you have the scene where they're kind of hanging out and dancing, which I also really love. Yeah. Where they're kind of playing cards and unwinding and all of that stuff. But all three of them, because they work in different aspects at you know different parts of NASA and they're fighting their own sort of battles, you don't have them together a lot. And so I wonder if that prologue or that opening scene was like where they started. Like, here's a microcosm of what the movie is. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. if it was, hey, we have all of this plot stuff. How can we open with all three of these women our three central characters and get the audience invested in all of them at the same time and in their friendship and in their interpersonal dynamic as well. So I think it's just great way to start a movie. Yeah, definitely. And it does the thing. It's funny. uh, We just talked about Lord of the Rings for like 10 hours and I didn't mention this, (laughs) which is, which is that one thing I like about that. And Game of Thrones is this really well too, is you introduce these characters who love each other and then you separate them for for a long time you yeah. know for game of thrones it's like six seasons or, or six mm-hmm. books you know and uh and, and but once you've done that work then you always yeah. have that relationship like in your your mind and heart and you're you don't need them to physically be together to know mm-hmm. that they are you know this this sort of family also that opening scene just it sets the tone of the movie which this is just yes. a movie mm-hmm. that like you feel the defiance of the characters in the filmmaking like the the movie has the sort of like defiant fun yeah good pacing kind of thing to it that sort of really puts you in in like the spirit of of the story itself and i like that Mm -hmm. there's a kind of oscar bait movie that thinks it's you know being oscar worthy by being not entertaining or like being (laughs) like like being more flat and hard to watch or spare or minimalist. It was so relaxing actually to just be able to sit back and enjoy the ride of this movie. Like the 
music and the editing and the, the flow of it. The music is such mm. a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they got they got Hans Zimmer and uh, Pro Williams. <laughs> Pro, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was just like such a delight. And but it's still it's not like a it's not a cheap shallow movie like it still right. has mm-hmm. real characters and real stakes and a really interesting historical context but it's letting you enjoy yourself and have a good time and not be bored and not be depressed you know like yeah. it, it, it's it's like yeah. an uplifting ride while also you know achieving the oscar thing thing yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. exactly yeah it was a movie that i liked a lot the first time but then rewatching it i was like this is even better the second time and i also feel like i could watch it tomorrow and still not feel like i just saw right. it feel like i'm having a really good time with it and that's you know talked about this a lot but like ultimately a movie should be there to entertain you and like make you enjoy the process of watching the movie even if it's going to wrestle with some things that are ugly or hard to deal with or whatever like i just rewatched uh synecdoche new york and that wow. is not a fun movie <laughs> to watch at all that is not one that i wanted to watch again the next day <laughs> right exactly <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, well, and I think that's what I was also so struck by upon watching it is it's it feels like a rare breed of a movie. And maybe Mm -hmm. like in some ways it feels like a movie almost of a bygone era where we could just have movies that were just they had starts and they had ends and it wasn't part of the saga. And it was just (laughs) the people behind it just wanted to make a good movie and they went out and did it. Right. Uh, So I just really respected it for that. And and I think as you guys are all pointing out, there's this level of efficiency that it's there's a lot of craft that went into making it be what it is. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like I can feel the work that went in. I think there yeah. are some movies where, you know, the best intentions and people tried to make a good movie, but, you know, something special and magical happened during the making of it. And it created this diamond movie that could never be replicated and i feel like this doesn't fall into that category for me it feels like a movie where everything they did is there on screen Mm -hmm. and it's maybe not more than the sum of its parts it is the sum of its parts and that's why it's so impressive right and i really like that about it it feels like perfect math Uh right right Mm -hmm. i don't know that that is really the sense that i get when i watch it where yeah it doesn't feel magic and that's right. not an insult. It mm-hmm. feels meticulously engineered, much in the same way that the <laughs> the climax of this movie is, right? Like <laughs> appropriate. Right, exactly. Or computed right down to the last decimal point. <laughs> right. Where where every scene is doing like functioning exactly on the level that it needs to function. There's not a stray word. There's not a stray like um yeah, story beat or anything that's that's superfluous and yet everything that's in here fits together nice and neatly like cogs in a machine and it's a really good example you know i write a lot of historical fiction and particularly i write a lot of like 
hidden figures type of stuff. So this movie did me a huge favor when it came out <laughs> because I was able to go like, I write hidden figures kind of things. And people were like, ah, oh, that was successful. Yeah. Right? But it is really hard to get this kind of movie made and mm. to make people interested in it and to make it successful. And so the fact that this movie was able to get made and break through and be as successful as it was at the time speaks to the level of engineering. And it feels like so many of the choices that were made were made because this movie had a, you know, just like a deadlocked vision on, yeah, the Oscar race, but also on we're going to make a movie about these three groundbreaking people, what they overcame to achieve what they did. And we're going to, it's kind of a dry or has the potential to be dry material as a lot of historical fiction does, but we're not going to make it dry. We're going to make it entertaining as hell and you're going to like watching it. And it's going to be able to break through the noise of other kinds of like the criticisms that people tend to lob at historical fiction movies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible like example of the kind of movie that, yeah, I just love and want to make, but is really hard to get made because people say it isn't marketable. Um, and hidden mm -hmm. figures was very marketable because of the way that it was put together. Mm -hmm. Right. The smart engineering also allowed it to elevate itself. In, in very particular ways that I think were useful. So we already talked about the music where it's not, you know, it's anachronistic music. Like yep. they're not trying to create music that would have been playing in the 60s. They're, Pharrell is like wrote a new song for it. And like, yeah. that's playing when she's running across the campus. So I feel like that's, that's the thing that makes it fun. And I think the cast is really good. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, yes. I want to even know how this cast came together mm. on their own i don't know that any one of the people would have been like oh yes this is a person that you could definitely hang an entire movie on and they would draw in everybody well these days they're all a lot bigger stars now even right like but yeah mm. right but yeah just that that and, and you know not that they weren't big stars then either right, but right. Just, it i guess i guess what i'm saying is all of them together and everyone coming to play really elevates scenes that like maybe could have been drier had the approach been different or had the actors not been as invested. I just feel like I'm constantly struck in every scene by every performance and how mm -hmm. much life there is and, and the spectrum of personality that gets to be displayed in all of the characters. And so I think that's a credit to the writing and the performances and the directing and all of it together, just as you're saying, makes it so much more fun to watch than it could have been had it mm -hmm. been done otherwise. They appropriately won the SAG Award for Best Ensemble Cast, which oh, I think yeah. makes sense. You know, it's like this is an example of a great ensemble cast where everybody together makes it a special movie. And I agree with you, Michael. I did feel that once again, I, I'm kind of have, using this archetypal blah Oscar movie as like the <laughs> counter example. There's like a blah version of this movie where people show up, the actors show up. And they don't come to play, but rather just to kind of get the job done. But I feel like even in really simple scenes, the actors are bringing layers and are making there's interesting subtext. And it's there's more going on than had to be uh, with the performances and with everything. Well, and they don't need to be huge or idiosyncratic characters, which I think is another right. thing that people like that's Oscar bait kind of traps that like right. <laughs> that, that you set to to trap the actor that you want. Right. <laughs> Where you're just right. like, hey, here was this historical person who had this huge personality. Don't you want to play them? Right. And, you know, this is what I'm saying when I mean that like this movie is really wisely approached because 
Catherine Goble Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, Mary Jackson. You might know their names, maybe, but like when you say those three names in the room to a, a studio executive, they don't know who those people are. I can't, mm. they don't. Maybe they know right. who Catherine Johnson is. Probably not. If they're a space buff, maybe, like <laughs> right. they, they care about the space race. You have three basically normal, extraordinary women, but not like, they're so famous that, you know, they're not Freddie Mercury, right? They're not like so famous that we have a ton of footage of them doing like big performances or, you know, somebody like Stephen Hawking who has like, you know, something really distinctive where you can instantly look at a person and go, I know who that historical figure is. You take these three women, it's really smart to put all three of them in it because that makes it about bigger than any one of them because mm -hmm. none of them are big enough individually, studio executives would say from a marketing standpoint. <laughs> Um, so put all three of them in it and then tie it specifically to a landmark moment in the space race. And it has to be a recognizable astronaut. So like none of the other, it has to be John Glenn. Okay, great. Like if it's somebody that the average American, you can say John Glenn to him or Neil Armstrong. Those are basically the two people, the <laughs> two astronaut names you could say. So they pick John Glenn, they pick this mission. You're making these women indispensable to this mission and telling the story of this mission using these real people as like the vehicle to do it again it's just like it's so hard to get movies about even really extraordinary groundbreaking people made especially in science unless you can <laughs> right. unless you can tie it to a major event like this and it's just brilliantly done it's really yeah and, and part of the interesting thing of that story too is how the book got made in the first place, which mm -hmm. was um, Margot Lee Shetterly actually grew up around these women. And like they were like her dad's uh, generation, I think. And she just grew up, oh, these women go and they work at NASA and they make spaceships fly. And that's just normal and, and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I think she and her husband were having dinner with her dad or something. And, and they were hearing these stories. And her husband's like, wait, what? This is th th these people exist and like no one yeah. is talking about them. Um, and then that inspired her to actually take these stories and like actually talk to them and and go find documents that told some of the story and, and get their personal histories and everything and then actually turn this into the book which then of course you know got the attention to get made into the movie but it's just it's just really cool it shows how many unsung heroes there are whose stories aren't being told until the right person comes along and goes oh holy crap you're more impressive than anyone else i've ever met and maybe <laughs> you don't realize that because nobody else is telling you that you know um so i, I really like that that that's how this book got made in the first place. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in a room trying to talk about a real story that happened that was totally outrageous. But if there isn't a book about it, uh -huh. no one is interested. <laughs> so you you take the you take a piece of IP. So then you have a book. You're like, you get into a room as a writer. And Alison Schroeder, for the record, also has a connection to NASA. And like, I think it was her dad that works at the Kennedy Center when she was growing up or worked at the Kennedy Center. Or her grandparents or, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she also has a connection to the material. You take a writer like that, you put the book in their hands and you send them into the room and you're like, we have people with personal connections to this real story that happened and we can tie it to a real historical event that you have heard of, executives. And it's space and everyone loves space. It's really visual. It helps make science also. Like science is, you know, known for being dry or sort of hard to portray in movies. And this movie falls into some of the like, 
there's a huge blackboard. They're doing yes. math on a huge blackboard. <laughs> Lots of huge blackboard <laughs> montages for sure. Right. You know, Which they did have, but yes, yeah, you gotta play it up for yeah. the like Matt Damon's mopping up in the background. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you have math and science, which are already a little hard to sell. But if you can tie it to something visual and cool, like the space race, then you can potentially get it off the ground. Again, Mm -hmm. wisely, wisely approached. The other interesting thing about how to make a movie like this, how to get it made and, and how to make it so entertaining is how far are you willing to push the historical uh-huh. you know, inaccuracies. Right. And one thing that I found really interesting was there are certain things in the movie that I thought there's no way this is how it went down. Like John Glenn asking specifically for Johnson to verify the IBM calculations. But that mm-hmm. actually did happen. That was, mm-hmm. but it happened like a week before. Like he, yeah. like she had a week <laughs> to check sure. the calculations. It was interesting because they, they took all these real bits of information and history, but then packaged it into this, you know, way too perfect for real life movie package where it's like John Glenn's on the pad, but to board the spaceship <laughs> yeah. and gets the call that Johnson like double checked it. You know, that, that stuff is like, it's so classically movie stuff as we talked about in our lord of the rings podcast Uh like Mm. what are these movie things the movie has so many of those movie things that as a skeptic watching it for like like how accurate is this there's lots of red flags as the movie goes on of like there's no way this happened this perfectly but then is that okay and yeah there's a whole conversation that had be had about that so trisha you're the historical fiction person Uh, like (laughs) what are your thoughts on like how to balance portraying reality and trying to give an authentic look at a moment while also making it a movie and doing movie stuff. I mean, you know, I think it really depends. I think that the choices overall that this movie makes are the right ones. It is not very accurate. (laughs) I'm going to just say (laughs) though, like it's not like these women actually were carpool buddies. They were not Octavia Spencer's character, Dorothy Vaughn was the first uh, female, I think she was the first female as well as the first black female supervisor at NASA. And that's kind of her whole, like, that's her subplot. She was, but she was promoted in 1948, right? Which is long, long before this movie Over a starts. Decade before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of things like that where you're just like, that's nowhere close to accurate. But at the same time, my impression, having read some interviews with some of the creators of this movie and some of the stars, and and, um, it just seems like overall there's an acknowledgement that the historical accuracy is not there, but that something very accurate and important is being done by the movie or said by the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the most famous parts of this aspects of this conversation is that Katherine Johnson has said she did not feel discriminated against at uh-huh. NASA, <laughs> which is the whole entire premise of the central conflict of this film and uh, does not seem to be in any way accurate. But she has also said, however, discrimination was incredibly real and mm-hmm. faced by a lot of women and, you know, and just black people at the time, obviously, especially in that part of the country, like there were civil rights injustices happening left and right all over the place we all know that and so she has said like yeah i didn't necessarily at nasa feel like i personally encountered all that much however this is speaking to something much larger than me and my personal experiences even though she reports not feeling the discrimination 
it, one of the stories that is brought up as being inaccurate is the fact that she didn't do the run across campus like right. a half mile mm-hmm. to the west side colored bathroom but she does say that she she used the whites only bathroom kind of without realizing it and then somebody complained at some point and she kind of mm-hmm. just ignored the complaint so like those things were still there like the structures were still in place mm-hmm. there absolutely and the running mary jackson did so that was a right. thing but somebody else experienced it and they gave mm-hmm. to her oh yeah. i see interesting i didn't know that yeah so anyway but i guess the point is even if she self-reports not kind of caring or or kind of just going with the flow and just using the bathroom she wants to use there were still white and colored bathrooms at nasa like the, these things were still there the, that's all real so it, i think the movie is telling the truth about the times and maybe yeah, remixing the characters and who does what exactly yeah there's a, a story in the book um where one of the other women not not these three uh went into work the first day and there's a sign at her desk that said colored computers and she said look i get it i i don't want this sign on my desk they said well that sign goes there and I'm like okay so she puts it in her purse and takes it home and presumably throws it away comes back the next day new sign does it again comes back the day next day new sign does it again and eventually they stop putting a new sign down and then the sign was gone you know just little things like that where it's like just the the spirit of those moments is obviously what makes its way into the movie and as you were saying, Trisha, it's like, yes, you are telling a story about this real person, but you're also telling a story about a people, you know, and, the, and right. it sort of becomes this like the character becomes a representation right. of, a, of an entire situation, not just of the, the actual he- real human being themselves. And as long as that person is cool with that, then great. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is a pretty key part yeah. of it, right? Like <laughs> you don't want to you don't want to do that to a historical figure that is still alive. Mm-hmm. That is like, listen, none of it happened this way. You can't tell it this way. But Katherine Johnson seems, yeah, to have said multiple times that like, yeah, this is a story about a time and a movement. And I was there for it. Right. right. Like, so it's kind of that. The meta conversation around like, when do we decide we care about historical accuracy or not in films is interesting. And I think often telling. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a thing that I was thinking about a lot when there was a lot of reaction to the historical accuracies in this movie. There are plenty of movies with historical inaccuracies that people don't care about. I think part of it is a like a media literacy problem also, where I think hmm. in general, if you are an audience, you know, a film goer that is going to watch a movie about a film, about a historical period, try to pretend that someone is taking events that happened over days and weeks and months and years and decades and centuries and compressing it down into two hours for your entertainment because Mm -hmm. that's what's happening. Right. (laughs) Uh, Like films, as we talked about in V for Vendetta, films use lies to tell the truth. And I think, you know, no film is going to be historically accurate 100%. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. I think how old a film is plays into that somewhat where, you know, I think the more recent the subject matter, the more we feel like there should be a more of a veracity to the events. And I think probably that's some of what is happening with hidden figures that's about NASA and, you know, all these things that we still have and that are still part of our culture. People that are still alive. Yeah. People that are right. still alive. And I think the further back you go, people care less about, you know, what Britain was actually like in the 1700s. And they didn't actually speak with those accents. That was invented in the 1800s, but mm. we think they speak that way and that's fine. And, so there's just a, a lot around 
historical accuracy and inaccuracy in film that I find interesting and when it when it bothers people and when it doesn't. Case in point, Braveheart, one of the least accurate movies ever made. <laughs> if you ever want to laugh, just do a deep dive into how inaccurate Braveheart is. Right. is incredibly inaccurate. There's they would not have even been wearing kilts. Just I just just go go down that rabbit hole. It is delightful. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think part of it is what the movie's intention is. And maybe this comes from the media literacy thing, Michael, but like I, I don't think most people are watching the social network or the favorite thinking, oh, right. you're here to tell me about this person's life. It's like, no, no, we're using this real character, th this real person as a character to make this, you know, crazy movie or, the, or, or this statement or to sort of meditate on this theme. Where it does bother me is in something like Hidden Figures, where it's like, this person was so great. We want to tell you about their life. We're going to change everything and tell you things that aren't actually their life. And I'm like, but if the person was so great, that should be enough. But that's not how drama works. That's not how movies work, you know, and it's like you have to sort of you want to make a good movie about their life. And life is not, you know, a good movie. <laughs> right. Life is not a good movie. Right. Life does not have sort of the structure and all that kind of stuff that you want. And especially if you're trying to make three characters, you have to give the three characters sort of the, the the right beats at the right time because that's how movies work and what has to change in order to do that. And as we were talking about, what are we trying to say about the meta here, the, about the culture of the time and how can we tie that into these characters? So I, I find it just unfortunate that when the entire point of a movie seems to be, this person was so great, we want to tell you about this person. I'm not picking on hidden figures. I'm saying in general, all biopics basically, that it ends up also being, but that person's life wasn't as interesting in the right order <laughs> as we want it to be <laughs> at, so the right time. Let's, at the right time. Yeah. So here we're going to change a bunch of stuff and then you're going to be left with here's sort of a, you know, what, what is Gary Oldman saying, Mank? Like you can't actually mm -hmm. tell someone's life story in two hours. All you can do is give the impression of it. And I think that that's, right. that's sort of where it lands for me. And I think that there's something interesting especially happening here because historical movies always have to do this. Basically, you always have to create amalgam characters where mm -hmm. you're combining yeah. like there were six people that did six different jobs. And especially at NASA, it's way more. <laughs> there right. were 200 people <laughs> who did 200 <laughs> jobs and they get one character in the movie. Right. And so mm -hmm. it's really interesting to me that this movie does that actually with the white characters pretty much across the board where Kevin Costner's character, Kirsten Dunst's character and Jim Parsons characters are all fiction. <laughs> None mm -hmm. of those was a real person. Oh, interesting. Those are all amalgam characters that are there to act as like sort of like institutional representations of authority and, you know, like sort of the white status quo at the time and a variety of like white attitudes toward racism um, and equality. So, those three characters are the amalgams and then they're you know, sort of serving as antagonists, if you will, to the mm -hmm. different like subplots in terms of the three central characters who all were, you know, real women. In a way, even the real women that were there and, you know, more probably Bri having having read the book or being more familiar with it. All of those three women were also amalgam characters or they they, you know, we understand now that they are representing a lot of women who did a lot of jobs. And one of the things I think is really beautiful about this movie is in Octavia Spencer, um, Dorothy Vaughn's subplot, 
there's a real emphasis on she's leading a team of women who are mm -hmm. all yes. doing this job. And one of the like cool moments at the climax is when she gets the chance, like, oh, you're going to come. We've reassigned you. You're coming over to work on the IBM. And she's like, I'm not coming there by myself. I have a whole group of people. And like, I love her foresight where she's like, she sees that the computer thing is happening and she's like, we're going to get replaced if we don't train ourselves on this and get ahead of it. Mm. So they're already ready to do the job when they're called upon to do the job, which is really cool. And it's like that shot where they're, you know, walking down the hallway yeah. towards like the big IBM is a great moment because it, it's highlighting this exact thing is that this is one of the constraints of telling a story in movie form. Right. There were a lot of people that were there that were contributing to any sort of like major milestone in history, almost always. It was very rarely that it really was just one person doing a thing. And so this movie is a really good example of how to, how to work some of that back in to that. Right. And, that, and that's exactly what happened in real life, as you point out in the video, Michael, that Catherine Johnson said, you're not making a movie about my life, you're making a movie about our lives and then right. you know she insisted that then these other characters be brought in so it's like just like she was one character who insisted that more characters be represented each of those characters is also representing more people which is why it's nice that the dorothy character the octavia spencer character is like literally has doing that exact thing yeah yeah right sort of has this like army of women with her uh to sort of if not by name by group to represent you know all of the women there who are doing this job yeah yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that the characters that they have amalgam characters. And I, I almost wish all historical movies did that. Like, I think that can then signal, I think that creates a freedom of responsibility, maybe that, that, you know, when you after the movie and you want to go look up, oh, yeah, the Kevin Costner's character actually <laughs> say that or do that. Why was he so obsessed with gum? Or whatever it is. <laughs> you go and Google it and then you realize, oh, he didn't exist, but there were these five other NASA right. directors right. that pieces of them are all in him. That's what people should be thinking anyway, I think, when watching any kind of mm -hmm. movie that is quote unquote historical is that quote that you quoted, Brian, from Mank. It's like, this is here to give an impression. And we've talked about how all characters in movies are kind of symbolic representations of ideas that of kind of have to walk, talk, and look like humans, but are actually just Ideas. a functional thing, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. That's, I, I guess, what's what's interesting about all this to me, and I think that's kind of the scary power of movies, also, though, is that there people will take it as real. Where there are examples like Mark Zuckerberg and The Social Network, where afterward people actually thought Mark Zuckerberg spoke like Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, like, you do have a certain responsibility because people do take movies to be fact, even though that's a they terrible idea. Not do that, yeah, right. <laughs> and, but it leaves us with things like, you know, we think dinosaurs look like they did in Jurassic Park, even though we know that's not true anymore. But it doesn't matter because that's what Jurassic Park says. Or like Saving Private Ryan. I think one of the more famous like debunking things is, you know the beginning of Saving Private Ryan is held up as this very historically accurate, like captures what it's like to be there, but bullets don't like kill people underwater. Is like a, a thing that's been <laughs> yeah, talked yeah, yeah. about a lot. Yeah, just an interesting thing to think about, I think, is when are we bothered by historical inaccuracies and why are we choosing to be maybe noticing in ourselves why we're bothered by certain ones and not others is a, a thing I'll just put out there. And I think we're at an interesting moment in time right now where we have expectations of our media to 
reflect because our media has the power to impact the way that we think about like sociopolitical issues now that we want even reflections of those from the past to be like continually making progress. <laughs> so you end up treating things right. like, I don't know, a recent example is like, you have a show like Bridgerton, which is a historical show <laughs> where there's no racism and it's just like, it's a fantasy, right? And we all like sort of understand that it's a fantasy. No one is expecting a show like that to be accurate because it's like not dealing with historical whatever, but but it's a route that you have to consciously make, right? Or like a consciously go that route if you're going to go that way. Or you have to like kind of be very, very careful about ways that you treat like past injustices and inequality because you want to reflect what was happening at the time while not perpetuating a lot of the problems that were also happening at the time. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's kind of where Hidden Figures is like hold it, trying to hold both of those things. Yeah. It seems like there's maybe a somewhat of a like double standard of like when it, a story is about like oppressed people, it must be like, let's show like accurately what the oppression was like. And like, it's got to be real or else we're not going to buy it. Mm -hmm. But then it's like, you know, Game of Thrones can't have black people because that's not real. That that right. doesn't feel realistic. <laughs> <laughs> like completely yeah. made up universe. Fantasy. Right. right. Or like Lord of the Rings. Like there are yeah. so it's it's just interesting. Yeah. Like we're as soon as we're talking about movies, we're not talking about reality anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I think the more important question is what are the stories we want to be telling and what are the stories that exactly. are useful to be telling and that's maybe more important than whether or not this thing happened in this year or that year sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. And the funny thing is, having just talked about Lord of the Rings, you get the same thing when books are being adapted, like Game of Thrones and you know Lord of the Rings. Obviously, there aren't real people at stake. So the, the stakes aren't as high, yeah. you know, but there are people who care about these fictional characters as much as they care about you know whether their friend's story is being told properly so you get things like oh this character has blue eyes why do they have brown eyes in the movie like this is bs and i don't know who cares about that but some people do you know and mm -hmm. th but then of course you have like bigger things of they change the entire ending which changes the the whole point of this book and you know so just like with talking about real people it is sort of this sense of we are trying to find this greater theme that we're trying to cover and what we're trying to speak about, whether or not everything has to be accurate or, you know, true to the book, true to real events, true to the the person is not quite as important as are we getting across the the, the sort of the themes and the messages and, and the general the general story that uh, either really happened or happened in the book. It's kind of a simple it's like two sides of the same argument, one of which. It's right. actually about real people, so it's more important, obviously, but it's sort of a similar thing. Well, it's like, why is Faramir such a dick in Two Towers? It's because <laughs> he's a composite character for, like, the world of men. So, you know, there, right. there are things that, as a book reader, like in Lord of the Rings podcast, I mentioned a lot, like, this isn't like the books. Why they do this? There are real good screenwriting reasons to do that, because you're doing a thematic story, not a one-to-one -one copy of a book that is not <laughs> designed to be a movie. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Hidden Figures, the movie was trying to do something very specific about like speaking towards progress issues in terms of race and racism, but also towards women in science. And mm -hmm. so like the movie very deliberately was like, 
marketed for like, hey, we're trying to promote women in science and STEM careers. And so there were like screenings and all of the different stars were like sponsoring screenings where it's like, Janelle Monet is going to like do 1500 seats for, you know, women to go see this movie, young women to go see this movie to like sort of, you know, create progress in its own way, even though it's a reflection of a historical time that's long gone now, right? Where back then there was discrimination against women in science and we don't have that now. (laughs) Have we fixed it? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, film that we make now is just at this interesting crossroads where we're we're trying to push things forward in terms of progress and at the same time be accurate. And sometimes it feels like those things can't coexist. Right. I think sometimes the more important thing is to be able to show people you know, role models, like be able mm-hmm. to show like right. young women, like this is what women in STEM looks like. And so if we have to, if we can only talk about past things with a hundred percent accuracy, and there was never a case of that in the past, then right. that limits our options of what are things we can put forward. And I think that's, we talked about this a little bit in Black Panther. Like, I think that's what's cool about things like Black Panther is like, let's create new stories mm-hmm. where there can be visions of, oh, I can see myself as this other person. But even fictional made up <laughs> worlds are an uphill battle. And so, yeah, it's just an, it's an interesting thing. And I think like you're saying, Trisha, it's, we're in a weird place right now because we understand that there is responsibility and that both sides, there are valuable things there and navigating it is tricky. Yeah. And actually all of this kind of dovetails in with my lesson. If we're getting close to lessons. Let's do it. Okay. Well, my lesson was just had to do with, I think a lot of the smart choices that this movie makes about historical accuracy um, in terms of the composite characters, as we mentioned, but also conveying some of the spirit of what was happening. So this movie was, uh, criticized quite heavily for some of the white savior e things that are mm-hmm. in here um particularly the scene with Kevin Costner where he um crowbars down the colored bath ladies bathroom sign mm-hmm. at the time that this movie came out and you know it's a corny moment regardless of, of <laughs> the, the sort of like racial problems uh that you might have with it which i think are valid but it, it reminded me a lot um of how progress at the time was actually happening, which has to do with this idea called interest convergence. Um, And and I'll be brief about it. But so there's this scholar, Derek Bell, he's also a a civil rights lawyer, coined this term interest convergence. And what he was pointing out is that progress um, historically has happened in terms of civil rights, particularly when white people see something in it for them to help people of color gain more rights and access. You know, Derek Bell at the time was pointing to Brown versus Board of Education and was saying like, hey, this was a a decision, a ruling that handed down basically because it was strategically argued that America was trying to fight communism globally, you know, um, and, you know, essentially sell the idea of democracy, yet segregation in our own schooling system was making us look bad overseas. And so maybe we should desegregate our schools so we can beat the communists. And that's kind of why we got Brown v. Board of Education. This is a really interesting, the movie is very careful, I think, in a lot of ways to frame white characters' actions as being self-interested fundamentally. And and so the progress, I think, that's often that we see in this movie, especially, comes from a place of interest convergence, where the cop, even at the beginning, is like, 
hey, you guys are trying to get our boys up there. We got to beat the Russians. And mm-hmm. uh, so let me give you an escort so you can get to work on time. That cop doesn't care about creating equality for these people of color. He is not trying to create justice or, you know, advance civil rights in any way. He's trying to beat the Russians. And, you know, he sees an interest Uh, self-interest there as a white American. And I think the movie takes a lot of care to frame Kevin Costner's character, who is fictional, but in that same light of, hey, (laughs) I need you at your desk so you can't be hiking across campus all the time to go to the colored ladies room. So I'm going to just tear it down because it's in my best interest that this mission go perfectly. And that's what interest convergence is. And historically, that is how progress has happened. And so I think that, yeah, this movie is... I mean, I have no idea if that was a a big part of the framework or that it was like intentionally approached that way. But I also see that in the side character of Janelle Monae, where she has to essentially make an interest convergence argument to the judge to get to go to the night classes that she wants to. Anyway, there are lots of instances of this in history. And I think it's it's really fascinating the way specifically that this movie treats it that is doing something historically accurate, even if none of the events that are actually being portrayed are in any way accurate. So anyway, just just really interesting, I think, as someone who writes historical film mm-hmm. to think about that. Yeah, I think the design of Kevin Costner's character is interesting, too, because mm. he is not depicted as being racist in the first place. He is he's just not individually, right? not individually. Right. Like just sort yeah. of, you know, he, he has the moment of pause when he sees Catherine and then he's like, OK, sit over there and he he doesn't really have a big uh, you know any big feelings one way or the other he's just trying to get his job done so it's unfortunate that he gets the big dramatic moment the big dramatic movie moment because yeah. his character is not actually really doing anything his character goes from being like look if you're going to get the numbers great i don't care who you are and then afterwards it's like oh you can't go to the bathroom i need you at your desk more so you know so his character is designed in a way to not really be this major antagonist or to have a big uh character arc which again is why it's unfortunate that he is then given the the, like the the trailer scene right exactly (laughs) which is eye (laughs) rolly to say the least but yeah yeah well and and i think again in the movie's defense like you know that is a big scene that he has but it comes right after a huge scene that Catherine Johnson has where right. she like drops the knowledge and I feel like Octavia Spencer's character Dorothy Vaughn leading everybody across like yeah. there are other big moments that the other characters have so it is also interesting that it's Kevin Costner's big moment that gets this attention and kind of dissected in this way right mm-hmm. I think the the more I think about that scene the bathroom sign doesn't come down because Kevin Costner takes it down it comes down because Catherine makes a stand and she makes a point and she makes it in a way that then the result of that is is the sign coming down but again that's not really how it's framed and it doesn't make you know (laughs) a hammer taking down a sign is a more (laughs) stimulating image than right it's always complex i think especially you know if you are adapting material about issues of justice right where there has historically not been justice and there's all these yeah we have to be tread lightly. And at the same time, we have to make movies. And so I think that this movie sort of holds both of those things in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this whole discussion is really nice because it's a discussion about context and about everything around this moment and the rest of the movie and what it all means. Something else that is that can be dispiriting about the Twitter conversation, the universe we're living in now, where an image can be taken out of a film 
And it's like, well, this image without any context equals this. But it's like, no, like, look at the context, look at the intention, look at the rest of this piece. And then we can have a discussion about this. Uh, and so I just, I just appreciate what podcasts can do and long form conversation can do that the Twitterverse just really cannot do. Oh, right. <laughs> well, yes. It also goes back to this movie was trying to get itself made. Right. At the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, is this when you have these moments that are potentially problematic and I am not the last word on what is and what is not problematic in this right. case for mm -hmm. the record. <laughs> Absolutely not. But when you have a moment like this that is potentially problematic, what we really need to be talking about, you know, ultimately is was this scene necessary to get this movie made? Did you have to give a star like Kevin Costner? Mm -hmm. Right. The trailer shot. Yeah. Did you have to give a white star a huge moment to get this movie about black women scientists made? And I don't know the answer to that, but that is an interesting question to ask yourself as an audience member. Right. What is necessary or what what did producers feel was necessary to get my butt in this seat and to get my money for this ticket? Because I think that's one thing this movie is undoubtedly triumphant at and that's where i started with it yes it broke through this yeah. subject matter on paper might not it very easily could not have worked and there are hundreds of projects like this that are sitting on the shelf right now but because of the way that this movie was made it got made <laughs> and we all saw it and it got all this award season buzz and that's what it was right. trying to do and so what does that say about us what does that say about the industry that's what I would like to continue talking about in the <laughs> <laughs> and continue trying to change, right? Yeah. You know, down yeah. the line. Yeah. I feel like the, the last thing I'll add to this little part is that it reminded me of, you know, Kirsten Dunst's character, Vivian. Mm -hmm. Her arc is interesting. I, basically, I really like the bathroom scene between Kirsten Dunst and yeah. Octavia Spencer. Wonderful performances. Yeah. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. Vivian says like, you know, you might not believe it, but like, I don't have anything against you people or whatever she right. says. <laughs> and Octavia Spencer, Dorothy's like, I know, I know you probably believe that. Yeah. And I feel like that's so perfect. <laughs> a really good acknowledgement, you know, kind of like you were talking about, Brian, of like, you know, Kevin Costner's character isn't presented as racist as an individual, but like, you know, just being part of a society and just being a normal person is like part of the problem. And it was the problem then, it's the problem now. We're all mm -hmm. part of a culture. And that's, I feel like there's an extra third dimension given to both Vivian's character and the world of the film in yeah. that moment for me of just acknowledging like there can be people that have no ill will or think they have no ill will or think they have no part of something but still are, and that that's part of the conversation. So I think that's just my my last entry, and that I think this film did try to bring a lot of perspectives and right. present a, a whole portrayal of, of all of these issues and, mm -hmm. and what, what it was like at that time. Yeah. Brian, what's your <laughs> lesson? <laughs> so I was thinking about the sort of biopic thing, and you know, we talk about historical accuracy and stuff, and that's a whole other um, conversation, but... I just think that biopics don't need to tell someone's entire life story. Yeah. And the more they do, the more you start to get, you, just like superhero origin stories, the more you start to see the plot points coming from a mile away and it gets sort of tiring and you, you become uninterested in it, I think. And, you know, I love that, first of all, Katherine Johnson insisted that her peers were also recognized. So right off the bat, by making this a movie about three characters, it doesn't feel like a biopic 
already because you're, mm-hmm. you're focusing on these three different characters. But more importantly, I love that we start with them. They're already working at NASA. They're already doing their thing. This is their day to day. And then when we get to the inciting incident, we jump right into here's what this story is actually about. Like we're, we're building towards this moment. And this is all about this very small portion of these characters' lives, the impact they had on humanity specifically over this two-year period. And I think by focusing on that, the filmmakers are able to fit so much more of it into that two hours than if they felt like they had to tell every detail of, you know, this person was picked on when they were 17 and that's how they got this job. It's like, that's not what this story is about. You can still talk about all of the greater themes and the details of this person's life, you know, her backstory, her, uh, you know, her second husband, all of that kind of stuff. But they're focusing on this one particular story. And because you only have two hours, you get a lot more out of that story than if you are trying to shove all this other stuff in. And I do really like it's a nice little touch at the beginning where they have her as a kid and they have Mm -hmm. those like the shapes and like she's in school and it's just the title sequence, really. But it's nice. It's It provides just like a little extra touch of context without, yeah, dragging down the entire plot by like, here's all the events from before. Right. Yeah. And and I feel like part of that's that's kind of part of the movifying it of it also is mm-hmm. like choosing to make it about these two years and then taking events that happened over a decade <laughs> earlier and like moving it into those Sorry, two years. It was actually 58. I checked my notes again. So okay. it was half a decade earlier. <laughs> Regardless, compressing time a lot is allows it to be focused in that way, but also make it so there's a lot of things happening at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting. So yeah, it's an interesting kind of, yeah, give and take there. Uh, Alex, what about you? So kind of going off of what Trisha was saying about how do you get this movie made and how do you get all the butts in the seats? I think another really smart thing that kept my butt in the seat in this movie because I like space and because I like space exploration and and this moment in history is how much the movie does a both and it's both this civil rights story and this portrait of these women and it's also a really riveting story about the space race and about this moment in time and the climax is really thrilling it's a really fun space movie climax it's not just kind of a small character biopic it has this grandness and there's you know, really cool shots in space in this movie. You know, our producer Vince, mm. when we began this podcast, said like <laughs> he was ready for a space movie, and I was I was laughing at him because like this isn't a space movie, but as as I've been reflecting on it, it kind of is at the same time as being this more maybe grounded mm-hmm. character biopic feel. So I, I think it's really part of what's so remarkable about the movie is how those things don't feel in conflict. The movie just yeah. feels all of one piece and yet it does has kind of something for everybody it's got the like four quadrant thing going on in a way that holds together and doesn't fall apart and it's even early on in the movie it was like fun visuals when Janelle Monet's character is like in the test chamber and her shoe yeah. gets stuck and <laughs> it, it, you know it, it's, it's it feels it doesn't feel like that dry biopic historical thing that we expect it, it's like a fun space adventure movie as well so so kudos to this movie for doing it all and and holding it all together while it did that mm-hmm. i mean yeah it's got that like long take of jim parsons explaining like orbits and how you're like <laughs> switching from parabola to the the other one and like yeah it's got lots of little space a lot of great it. high heels in this movie a lot of great <laughs> high heel moments yes yes, yes. <laughs> movement in high heels <laughs> 
both those things. Michael, what's your lesson? Uh, let's go watch. I want to watch Apollo 13. <laughs> yeah. Fewer high heels in that movie, unfortunately. Very true. But it's got Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a lot about subplots and and. I think everything you're saying, Alex, also feeds into this. And honestly, everything we've talked about, it, it there's so much in this movie, but it doesn't feel like when you're watching it, like it's an overstuffed movie. Like there's right. a certain effortlessness that that comes and and the pacing, like and it never feels like it slows down. And so it's impressive the design of again the plot and the subplots and when they choose to show what and when they are gonna kind of go into the oppression of these people and when they're going to go into the space race. And like, I just feel like all of those little bits are doled out right at the right time and also come together in a really fun way. It, it made me think a little bit of arrival actually. And we, we talked mm. about like the third act of arrival and how I anyway had some issues with it. It kind of feels like at the end of that movie, now they need to figure out how to make Amy Adams being able to see the future. <laughs> can save the world and so now china's going to be angry there's a little bit of that in this where it's like well now you know john glenn needs the numbers verified or else we're not going to win the war against the russians (laughs) the space race but because of all the work that was done up to that point it is a smoother transition for me and i buy Mm. it and it feels like the payoff that has been set up from the beginning and so i think that's just Yet another one of the things that this the script does very well. It's a very well constructed script, and kudos to them for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? Alex, what have you been watching recently? So, as I've said before, uh, I loved Soul on Disney Plus uh, late last year. It was my favorite movie of 2020, and so I was just having an itch for more Pixar. And I realized on Disney Plus they have all the Pixar shorts, mm. and I haven't watched a lot of those for a long time i haven't seen some of them and so i just like spent a night like revisiting pixar shorts and it was just the loveliest night i got emotional (laughs) there's just so yeah so if you just want to like feel a bunch of emotions and see beautiful animation and just feel good about life just go watch all the pixar shorts in disney plus some of my favorites were um piper is a really cute one so good beautiful animation i love the oceans and it's it's all about a little bird learning how to you know get snails (laughs) in the mm-hmm. in the sand <laughs> uh lava is a really sweet one where it's like it's all it's basically a song about you know a volcano that wants another volcano to love <laughs> and la luna is a really beautiful one where it's like kind of this i guess like italian fisherman and his son and his dad all trying to like i guess make the moon become the right shape <laughs> anyway they're really creative <laughs> they're really beautiful they all make you feel something Pixar shorts and Disney Plus. Can't go wrong. Very nice. Also, yeah. Riley's First Date from Inside Out and Jack-Jack Attack from The Incredibles, both quality. Oh, Riley's First Date. I didn't know that existed. I'll have to check that out. Oh, it's awesome. I was going to say the new one, Burrow, which is the one that goes with Soul, is also really beautiful and just really fun. It's wordless and it's just like really cute. And yeah. I noticed almost all of them are wordless, which I think is also really special. There's something and really very about that. instructive. I always have students yeah. watch those mm. when they're learning about story. Like, you want to tell a story in ten minutes without words? Pixar shorts are the thing. And it's great, yeah, that they can all exist so easily, and it's such an easily accessible way now on Disney Plus. Yeah, cool. <laughs> they didn't pay us to say that. <laughs> I know. As I was saying, it was like that feels like a plug, but I'm not trying. Disney, give us money. Uh, Brian. 
Speaking of soul, uh, I watched One Night in Miami, which Ooh. is written by Kemp Powers, co-writer mm-hmm. and co-director of Soul, based on his play. Um, it's on Amazon Prime and written by Kemp Powers, directed by Regina King, which is just a really cool thing to be able oh, to I say. Didn't realize that. Yeah, I cool. love her. Um, she's directed a bunch of television, but this is her first film, and very, very well directed. And it's a sort of fictional meeting of Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, and uh, Jim Brown as played respectively by Kingsley Ben-Adir, Eli Gorey, Leslie Odom Jr., and Aldous Hodge, who you may recognize as uh, Mary's husband in Hidden Figures. Uh-huh. And yeah, just like Marini's Black Bottom, actually, it's based on a play and therefore largely set in one room. But when the writing is good, the performances are amazing. You know, that's all you need, really. And, and yeah, it doesn't have much in the way of a traditional plot. So there's definitely a point in the middle of the movie where I started to think, like, where where are we going? Where, what is there a story here? Is there a plot? But all the individual scenes are fantastic and that makes it worth it. And then by the time it all wrapped up, I was pulled way back into it. Really enjoyed it. Definitely recommend it. I imagine we'll hearing we'll be hearing about it plenty over the next few months as award season kicks off. Awesome. Yeah, definitely want to check that out. Mm-hmm. Trisha, what have you been watching? So this is the last week of January that we're recording this, and I'm about to get to watch a ton of movies at Sundance this weekend. Yay. I say at Sundance, I mean on my Sundance app on my computer. (laughs) But there was a movie from, I think it was last year at Sundance that I recently just now caught and it's called The Nest. It's a movie from, I think, was widely released in 2020, but directed by Sean Durkin, who is the director of Martha Marcy May Marlene. Mm. This was a movie he made uh, starring Jude Law and Carrie Coon. And Mm. it's uh, this very quiet drama, you know, indie drama, uh, Jude Law plays a business person. It's said in the 80s. He's like, you know, doing whatever <laughs> trading kind of thing. I'll um, be back. I have to go do some business. <laughs> I mean, this is to me all movies set in the 80s that have anything to do with finance. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> I've just come back from the business store. <laughs> but he moves his family. He's married to an American woman, Carrie Coon, and he moves his family back to England. And they move into this old manor house in like the English countryside where they're kind of isolated and it's just this quiet like sort of unraveling of this family drama where Jude Law starts to realize that he's not successful and he's just pretending to be and it's sort of coming to grips with like failure as father and husband and it's just sort of his life starts to crumble you know the house is like a metaphor as houses in movies often are about like an empty dream right you know kind of thing it's this huge house that they don't have enough furniture to fill and everything but they shot this movie on 35 millimeter it's so gorgeous and just evocative Mm. jude law and carrie coon are really good in it they look all 80s out kind of you know and it's just I don't know. It's riveting. I was, I really couldn't look away from it. So I really liked it. Um, it's called The Nest. Nice. Awesome. I love Carrie Coon. So I mean, I she's fantastic in this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think she's one of those actors who, like, I saw in three things before realizing it was the same person. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like that kind of range, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of Martha Marcy, May Marlene, I'm mm-hmm. going to say that I've been watching WandaVision. There are three episodes out, right? Okay. Uh I see that connection. I'm sure many people were was very curious of what it was going to be like. And I really, really enjoyed the pilot. And it's been interesting to see how it has changed and evolved. There are three episodes as of this Mm -hmm. uh, recording. So we're still early on. But overall, I'm really enjoying 
this first foray of Marvel into we're going to do some weird stuff. And Me too. <laughs> we're going to take these characters that like I liked fine in the movies, but I wasn't obsessed with or weren't my favorites by any means and do something really interesting with them that now I'm pretty invested in. So, yeah, that's my report. I'm I'm really enjoying and curious about WandaVision. And it's been fun in the Discord to talk to our patrons about like their takes on it and everyone has different thoughts and everything. So that's been really fun. I really yeah. like it, too. Yeah. Cool. Well, this has been our conversation about hidden figures. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Beyond the Screenplay is produced by Vince Major, who is very pro space. And our excellent (laughs) editor is Eric Schneider. Who hates space. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Arand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. As always, send us a tweet and say hi. If you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend. We always appreciate helping spread the word. And as we said in the beginning, let us know if you're listening on Spotify, which is your favorite Indiana Jones film. Hopefully we'll be hitting that next Patreon goal soon and we can dive into the Indiana Jones films. Until then, thank you everyone for listening. We will see you in the next episode when we will be talking about eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Yes! Yay!